G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Last week, we looked at the first man, Adam, and we had some interesting insights there. So it's going to be interesting to see what we can find out about the next in the genealogy, the sun of Adam. It sure is. Let's kick it off with some scripture and we'll read the passage about Seth from Genesis 5 verses 6 to 9 from the New English translation of the Septuagint. Now Seth lived 205 years and became the father of Enos. And Seth lived after he became the father of Enos 707 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth amounted to 912 years and he died. That's not a lot of text, is it? We don't actually get a lot written about Seth. No, you're right. And as I've been saying every week so far this season, as we continue through the duration of this season, we'll be reading from the Septuagint for reasons that I explained in our introductory episodes. So, listeners, please go back and check those out if you haven't already. So where do we start with getting some understanding of how other people were thinking about Seth? Yeah, great question, because you're going to find that nobody ever mentions him ever again in the entire Bible outside of just mentioning his name in genealogies. And they're really only doing that just to point to Adam. But it turns out that there were lots of opinions about Seth, if you know where to look. In the Second Temple period, interpretations of the character of Seth were largely positive. Ben Sirach saw in Seth the epitome of a faith tradition that began in Adam and which was surpassed only by the high priest of Ben Sirach's own day. Simon, the son of Onias, who was credited for the rebuilding of the temple. You can read about this in the book of Sirach, chapters 44 to 50. Here's a quote from Sirach, chapter 49, and leading into chapter 50. No one like Enoch has been created on earth, for he was taken up from the earth, and no man like Joseph has been born, and his bones are cared for. Shem and Seth were honoured among men, and Adam above every living being in the creation. The leader of his brethren and the pride of his people was Simon, the high priest, son of Onias, who in his life repaired the house and in his time fortified the temple. So what we see in Sirach and the inclusion of Seth at the end of a line of righteous patriarchs, which started back in chapter 44, is similar to the idea that I've presented in previous episodes of the podcast, where a story is being told by presenting a succession of individuals. And the idea is to connect the earliest characters to the latest ones in order to show some aspect of character or some similarity in their lives that makes a point about the present generation. Ben Sirach has made this process much easier by reserving the mention of Seth until the very end of his retelling of patriarchal history, even though he started with the righteous Enoch, so as to draw an immediate parallel going back to the earliest point in biblical history. That's pretty cool, and it does make you wonder what Ben Sirach saw in Seth that made him, you know, worthy of being mentioned. Yeah, likewise the author of Jubilees likes Seth as well, in fact, with praise that makes him appear saint-like. This is Jubilees chapter 19, verses 23 to 25 in the Wintermute translation. And all of the blessings with which the Lord blessed me and my seed will be for Jacob and his seed always. And in his seed, my name will be blessed and the names of my fathers, Shem and Noah and Enoch and Mahalalel and Enos and Seth and Adam. And they will serve to establish heaven and to strengthen the earth and to renew all of the lights which are above the firmament. 
So we see in Jubilees an expansion on Genesis 25 and also chapters 13 to 15, where Abraham encourages Jacob's mother to protect Jacob because Abraham understands that it's through the line of Jacob that the covenant promises made to Abraham will be realized. The author of Jubilees has drawn a connection genealogically through Seth to establish identity, but he goes further than the author of First Enoch, who has done the same thing, by elaborating on the character of Seth as one who will ultimately participate in the fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham, which anticipates an eschatological fulfillment of the reversal of the sins of the watchers. So is that what it meant when it said they will serve to establish heaven and strengthen the earth and renew all the lights above the firmament? Like in the end times, the Messiah is going to restore cosmic order and replace the fallen sons of God with the saints? Exactly, because the author knows that the Messiah is going to come through that line, and since Seth is in that line, he's counted as one of those saints. In keeping in mind that we're reading a 2nd century BC text, the author is free to weave together elements from the primeval history, which almost certainly didn't exist in the form we know now, back into Abraham's day. Now, we have Abraham talking about pre-flood patriarchs as if he was familiar with the story, and yet we find no evidence that this was the case when we actually read the account of Abraham's life from the book of Genesis. They did this kind of thing all the time in Second Temple period literature. It's just the way they did things. It'd be nice to have something substantial to say about Seth from the works of Philo. But Philo seems to be so enamoured with Seth's son that he almost completely ignores the father. And this high praise of Enos is reflective of the Greek influence of Philo's philosophy in which mankind is the pinnacle and the crowning glory of all creation. So much so that the father of Enos might as well not exist. He's barely regarded as even being human. The ancient Greeks were, were so focused, weren't they, on the intellect and, and intelligence and rationality, and I think they see that in humanity more than any other species. So I guess it's natural that they'd be focused on the guy whose name was interpreted as man. Yeah, although Philo does offer an interesting interpretation on the name of Seth, which he equates with the idea of the watering of plants. And I mentioned earlier that in preference to the word appointed, we should probably read something more like planted in Genesis 4, where Eve speaks of Seth as being another seed established by God to replace Abel. So we've sort of gone from planting to watering as if we're talking about the same thing. And despite his Greek predisposition toward the adoration of humanity as among the highest of all principles, Philo does regard Seth as righteous for purely philosophical reasons on the basis that he wouldn't have been included in the genealogy if it weren't for his own righteous character. And playing on the idea of water associated with the name of Seth, Philo reasons that whatever good things were passed on to the clearly favoured Enos were the result of what Seth received from his own father Adam, like a plant receiving water from above. That's basically the idea presented in Philo's Questions and Answers on Genesis, Volume 1. Likewise, Josephus viewed Seth as righteous and explicitly described him as such in his first volume of The Antiquities of the Jews. I'm going to give you a quote from Josephus. And you'll notice that he uses the chronology that we've been talking about earlier in this season of the podcast, which, although it does not depend on the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, because Josephus was competent in his scholarship as a Hebrew, certainly agrees with the timeline presented by the Septuagint in Genesis 5. We were talking before about how this is evidence that the original Hebrew text that existed prior to the Masoretic text actually featured the same chronology presented in the Greek translation. But all that's beside the point, because what we're really focused on here is what Josephus has to say about Seth. Again, this is the Antiquities of the Jews, Volume 1, and reading from line 67 onward. Now Adam, who was the first man, and made out of the earth, for our discourse must now be about him. After Abel was slain and Cain fled away on account of his murder, 
was solicitous for posterity. I think that means he wanted kids. And had a vehement desire of children, he being 230 years old, after which time he lived other 700 and then died. So there's that original Hebrew chronology we've been talking about. Yeah, he had indeed many other children, but Seth in particular, as for the rest, it would be tedious to name them. I will therefore only endeavor to give an account of those that proceeded from Seth. Now this Seth, when he was brought up and came to those years in which he could discern what was good, became a virtuous man. And as he was himself of an excellent character, so did he leave children behind him who imitated his virtues. All these proved to be of good dispositions. They also inhabited the same country without dissensions and in a happy condition without any misfortunes falling upon them till they died. Now, I'll just break it in again. Um, and the, the text goes on to heap praise upon the descendants of Seth as though they invented everything that was good and preserved all the great knowledge that existed prior to the flood, which is a late tradition, probably originating in the wake of the exile and the Enochian material. There's all this stuff in the Book of the Giants and Jubilees and Josephus, among other works, that feature this idea that Seth was responsible for preserving the warning of a vision received by Adam concerning the destruction of the world by flood and fire. So this is what Josephus had to say about that. They also were the inventors of that peculiar sort of wisdom, which is concerned with the heavenly bodies and their order, and that their inventions might not be lost before they were sufficiently known, upon Adam's prediction that the world was to be destroyed at one time by the force of fire, and at another time by the violence and quantity of water. They made two pillars, the one of brick, the other of stone. They inscribed their discoveries on them both, that in the case the pillar of brick should be destroyed by the flood, the pillar of stone might remain and exhibit those discoveries to mankind, and also inform them that there was another pillar of brick erected by them. Now, this remains in the land of Syriad to this day. Wait a minute, is he saying that one of these pillars actually existed in the first century and you could go and see it if you were there? Yeah, that's what it sounds like, mate, although I have my doubts about the validity of that claim because there are a whole bunch of written stories about this. And in most of them, they don't agree about what material those pillars were made of, except they do agree that one of them was made of brick and was destroyed in the flood. I wonder where that other one is now, because it'd be interesting to know if it was in fact made of stone or marble or bronze, as some of the other traditions have it. And to me, it's kind of dubious that the one that should have survived the flood is the one that nobody agrees about what it was made of. Anyway, let's get back to Josephus. Now, this posterity of Seth continued to esteem God as the Lord of the universe and to have an entire regard to virtue for seven generations. But in process of time, they were perverted and forsook the practices of their forefathers and did neither pay those honors to God which were appointed them, nor had they any concern to do justice towards man. But for what degree of zeal they had formerly shown for virtue, they now showed by their actions a double degree of wickedness whereby they made God to be their enemy. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men, that's the descendants of Seth, by the way, did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. That's the end of our quote. So just to be clear about this, Josephus is saying that the descendants of Seth began to do what the giants were doing. So he's not saying that they became giants or that they were the sons of God or anything like that. Right. This is essentially a case of bad company corrupting good character. 
So you're getting something of the positive flavour associated with Seth in late Second Temple period Jewish thought. And some of those ideas would persist for hundreds of years, particularly in later apocryphal works like The Life of Adam and Eve, which probably originated in the first century, but remained in circulation for the next 400 years at least. Here's a short extract from that particular text. This is from the R.H. Charles translation of The Life of Adam and Eve. From chapter 49, verse 1. Six days after... Adam died, and Eve perceived that she would die. So she assembled all her sons and daughters, Seth, with thirty brothers and thirty sisters. And Eve said to all, Hear me, my children, and I will tell you what the archangel Michael said to us, when I and your father transgressed the command of God. On account of your transgression, our Lord will bring upon your race the anger of his judgment, first by water, the second time by fire, By these two will the Lord judge the whole human race. But hearken unto me, my children. Make ye then tables of stone and others of clay, and write on them all my life and your fathers, all that ye have heard and seen from us. If by water the Lord judge our race, the tables of clay will be dissolved, and the tables of stone will remain. But if by fire the tables of stone will be broken up, and the tables of clay will be baked hard. When Eve had said all this to her children, she spread out her hands to heaven in prayer and bent her knees to the earth. And while she worshipped the Lord and gave him thanks, she gave up the ghost. Thereafter, all her children buried her with loud lamentation. When they had been mourning four days, then Michael the archangel appeared and said to Seth, Man of God, mourn not for thy dead more than six days. For on the seventh day is the sign of the resurrection and the rest of the age to come. And on the seventh day, the Lord rested from all his works. Thereupon, Seth made the tables. That's the end of the quote. So this is the kind of thing that Josephus may well have been aware of. But what you should notice in the words of Josephus is that he considers the entire line of the descendants of Seth as sharing in the same collective righteousness that was ascribed to him, even if only on the basis of contrast against Cain. So Everybody from Seth through Noah and on beyond the flood is attributed the righteousness of Seth. And it would appear that Seth is only counted as righteous by way of favorable comparison against Cain. Josephus offers no other rationale for this favorable interpretation of Seth and his line. It is worth mentioning, however, that Josephus does record the eventual decline into depravity of all humankind in the lead up to the flood. And perhaps this prevents him from making the interpretive leap that much later commentators did, where some writers saw fit to equate the sons of God in Genesis 6 with the righteous line of Seth. He kind of sounds like he's getting close to that idea, though, because you have the, the Sethites behaving like the giants. Yeah, that's right. There's definitely a trend toward identifying these groups as related. Now, you might be curious about some of those late interpretations that I just mentioned, because many of us were born and raised on the Sethite view, despite the lack of any understanding of where it came from. Here's one from late in the 8th century AD. This is an extract from the chronology written by Byzantine historiographer George Sincellus. And watch out for this one because it starts with a bang. Seth's offspring, called sons of God and watchers, inhabited the more elevated region of Eden near Paradise. In Adam's 230th year in which Seth was born, it was Cain's 160th year. Sorry, did you notice the use of the chronology that agrees with the Septuagint here? This is an 8th century text. Anyway, I think I've made a point. I'll continue. In the 234th year, Adam begot a daughter 
whom he named Azura. In the 243rd year of Adam, Seth was weaned. In the 270th year of Adam, Seth was taken up by angels and given instruction as to what would happen concerning the transgression of the watchers and the affairs concerning the coming flood of water and about the coming of the Saviour. And after his disappearance for 40 days, he returned and related in full to his parents what he had been taught by the angels. He was 40 years old at that time. Seth was devout and exceedingly well-formed, and all his descendants were devout and beautiful. I'm just going to interrupt here to point out a few things. Firstly, did you notice that Seth has been put in the place of Enoch? Yeah, that was weird. What's going on there? Uh, this this appears to be basically a late Christian appropriation of First Enoch, where Seth has been inserted into the narrative in the place of Enoch, but maintaining Seth's place in the chronology. We also had reference to the Saviour there, which is obviously Jesus Christ, about whom the original Enochian tradition and the text of Genesis are, of course, silent. That's in contrast with these other traditions where the destruction by water is paired with destruction by fire. Here you have the Saviour instead of the fire. And then there's the awkward situation with Seth's own offspring being called explicitly the sons of God and watchers on account of their righteousness. And then we have this account of their impending fall from righteousness due to the temptation afforded by the daughters of men. So he's trying to have it both ways. Here the sons of God are both good and bad, depending on the, the point being made at the time. The text continues with a retelling of essentially the same information. Uh, it says, at the behest of Adam, they inhabited the more elevated region of Eden, opposite paradise, living as angels do, up to AM 1000. What's uh, AM 1000? Is that like really early in the morning? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll interrupt me reading to explain that one because it is a bit weird. Uh, AM, or in Latin, uh, Anno Mundi, means year of the world, which is a system of reckoning chronology based on creation and the birth of Adam as a start date. We were talking about that before. I mentioned how that's quite a late invention, which was not in use during the biblical period. Uh, back to the quote, the author of evil, unable to tolerate the sight of their virtuous conduct, did harm to them by using the beauty of the daughters of men of that time. Concerning them, the divine Moses also says that the sons of God, seeing the daughters of men that they were beautiful, took for themselves wives from among them. That's the end of the quote. So you'll notice here that the Sethites or sons of God in this interpretation are excused from blame for what happened with the daughters of men on the basis that the author of evil or he who must not be named, if you like, is uh, responsible for that sin which resulted in the necessity of the flood. And we've conveniently forgotten that just a moment ago, the sons of God were the same guys who descended directly from Seth and who participated of their own volition in transgression. Even when the author quotes Moses, and we're using Moses as in the law of Moses, not the person who wrote the thing whose name may or may not have been Moses, the text does actually say that it was the sons of God who pursued the daughters of men, not that the daughters of men specifically enticed them or that some other divine agent was responsible for the temptation, at least in so many words. So you can see how inconsistent this is. Yeah, it's very confusing. Part of what's going on here is the apparent need to connect the hope of Enos, as recorded in the Septuagint, with Jesus. You might remember that we talked about that toward the end of season four of the podcast. So basically what's happening is that late Christian interpreters have decided that Enoch comes too late in the story to be able to provide this hope for his predecessor Enos. Therefore, Seth has to receive this vision before Enoch does. And the way to solve that is basically take Enoch's story and apply it to Seth. 
And this also has the effect of providing a correction for the Enoch story in which the Messiah could be interpreted as Enoch himself, because now we get to point back to Jesus. It's worth noting that a strong influence on George Sincellus, who wrote the text we were just reading, was Julius Africanus, who was one of the earliest proponents of the Sethite interpretation of Genesis 6, 1-4. But you can see as we follow the trajectory of Christian interpretation in the centuries after the establishment of the church, that this tendency to look for Christ in the earliest parts of the Old Testament seems to wind up in the predicament of Christianizing characters in these Jewish texts which becomes problematic for correct interpretation of those original texts. And I've talked about this in some detail in my book. So now, because we wanted to look for Christ in the earliest parts of Genesis, we had to say that the people in the lineage of Christ must therefore be righteous and saint-like, and this even to the detriment of the plain reading of the text and its traditional interpretation for the sake of an innovation of the church in the early medieval period. I know the Orthodox Church likes to tell us that nobody ever innovated anything among the church fathers, but... It's clear that quite regularly they do. I can't pick on the Orthodox, though, just because I mentioned George Sincellus. You're going to find this in every Christian tradition. What about non-Christian traditions? Yeah, well, another religion that, in the opinion of some commentators, seemed to have particular interest in Seth as a figurehead was Gnosticism. And as an example, we already read an excerpt from The Life of Adam and Eve, which was one of several Gnostic texts to mention Seth. But Gnosticism as a whole doesn't place any real significance on Seth as an individual uh, and suggestions that there may have been some kind of Sethite Gnostic tradition, even among isolated Gnostic sects, have now proved to be unfounded. Certainly there was some Gnostic interest in Seth, especially owing to the fact that he was the first generation after Adam and therefore would have been privy to some knowledge of the divine abode and the pre-fall condition of man. But we don't have any substantial documentary evidence to support the idea that there were any particular Gnostic groups devoted to idealizing Seth. Having said that, I'm aware that there were apparently some Egyptian Gnostics who seemed to believe that Jesus was actually a hypostasis of Seth. So that's weird. Now, how did I get from early Christian traditions to Gnosticism? Well, to be fair, that's actually less of a hermeneutical leap than trying to get from Judaism to Gnosticism. And speaking of Judaism, and we're talking late rabbinic Judaism now, not the Jewish religion in the Second Temple period, they took a very different view of Seth and the line of the Sethites. Did they? So what did they think of Seth then? Well, according to the rabbis in the Targums, Seth was the father of a generation that turned away from the true worship of God and devoted themselves to idolatry. But what could have convinced them to see this genealogy so negatively? Is this really a late tradition, or perhaps could they be drawing on something earlier? I want to go back to the Sumerian king list that we've been mentioning frequently so far in this season of the podcast, because I mentioned last week that there was something of a parallel between the king list and Genesis 5, that was not about the numerical values. It's an apparent correlation between the second man in Genesis 5 and the first man on the king list. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I was just talking about the Targums, which, of course, have a heavy Babylonian influence due to the time that the Jews spent in exile. As I've mentioned recently, the Sumerian king list does not feature the first man according to Sumerian mythology. However, the first man on the king list if we're keeping in mind the connections we've already discussed between Genesis 5 and the king list, it's going to correlate with the second man in the Genesis 5 record, the son of Adam. Alulim is a name that means seed of the red deer. That's an interesting name. 
The use of the color red suggests a connection to the biblical first man, Adam. We've, we've talked in the past about his association with redness, which comes from the similarity of his name to the word for redness or blood, which is dark. Now, you're not going to find the word red in the Sumerian logogram for Alulim. It just comes through in the name of the animal. The red deer was a common beast known to North Africa, the Near East and Western Europe, and it was one of the animals used to represent a character that we find in Sumerian mythology, whose name is Dharama. And that translates as the great stag. Now, whether we see any correlation between the biblical Adam and the Sumerian Dharama remains to be seen. But in case you feel like you might be getting a bit lost at this point or you're not familiar with Dharama, you might find that you know him better as the Sumerian god Enki, also known as Ea. In fact, the logogram used to represent Enki is preserved right in the middle of the name of Alulim. It's a square made by four long impressions of the stylus, and in its centre is a cross. This is a representation of the horns of the stag featuring the sun in its centre. The symbolism is actually quite complex and multi-layered because the square is also seen as the land. Remember that Enki means Lord of the Earth, or as we have him in the Bible, the God of this world. But it would be far more accurate to use the terminology of land rather than Earth. The Sumerians thought of the world as having four corners. We still use that kind of terminology today. We don't necessarily take it literally, neither did they. So the idea of a square with the cross through its centre gave the impression of the entire world and everything within its borders. Enki was considered to be the god of not only the land, but the air and water as well. He's associated not just with the stag, but also with the fish. And sometimes he's represented as an eagle. Now, to be fair, if you study the name of Alulim, you'll find that the first part of the name, which is translated as seed, is more closely related to either a horn or an arm or something that conveys strength and fertility. And the concept, the point they're really trying to make with this name is that this guy is the offspring or the strength of Enki. The seed basically conveys the same idea. He's the guy who establishes the dominion of Enki. We've talked before about how in the ancient world you needed to have a son in order to secure your authority as a ruler. Enki needs a guy on the ground, and his guy is Alulim. So we've got some interesting ideas coming through with Alulim, who's basically seen as the human representative of the Sumerian god Enki. We've got dominion over the four corners of the earth. We've got the idea that he's the son of someone connected to redness and an animalistic nature, and the possibility that one of the names of Enki may have a linguistic connection to the name of Adam. Here's an interesting thought. Enki's also associated with the number 40, which is symbolically represented by the cross within the four sides of the square that represents the name of Enki. Here we see the number 40 used as representative of dominion over mankind, four representing the four corners of the earth and ten representing the total of humanity. Seth was apparently 40 years old when he had his heavenly experience, according to that tradition we talked about earlier, where Seth gets to be the main character in Enoch's story. We've got a lot of coincidences there. So the question is, could the biblical Seth really be the Sumerian king Alulim? Uh, the short answer is absolutely not. There's just nothing in terms of any real data that could bring those two characters together. And I use that word characters very intentionally. This is literature. And as such, the best we could make of it is a literary connection. Maybe there's a chance that some Jewish authors had some awareness of the Sumerian tradition. And maybe they chose to cast Seth in a negative light in view of the storytelling value of seeing him as an idolatrous sinner like those ancient Mesopotamians. In fact, it probably had more to do with the Jewish overreaction to the literary Christianization of the patriarchs by the early church, especially in the wake of AD 70 and later the Bar Kokhba revolt. Basically, the Jews were like, well, if you're going to turn one of our patriarchs into this guy who's anticipating Jesus, 
then we're going to disown him and show that he was really an idolater and a blasphemer like your mate Jesus. But at the end of the day, we need to respect the fact that the scriptures do not portray Seth negatively. Come to think of it, they don't really portray him positively either. He's just a guy. But you can see how far off base people can get by taking a guy like Seth, about whom we know almost nothing, and writing him into their own stories that they're bringing to the text. Yeah, so why do people seem to like Seth so much in the early traditions? Part of it definitely has something to do with the idea that he forms part of a lineage that, even if you don't extend it all the way to Christ, it certainly does extend to Abraham and to Moses. So that puts him in the good books as far as Jews and Christians are concerned. But there are also plenty of examples in Scripture where there are bad people connected to the line of the Messiah. So is there anything else that might make us think that he was one of the good guys? I think it probably has something to do with the number 912 associated to his age. We have that 900, which we talked about as a multiple of 60, and that's connected to kingship. But it's not just 900. It's 12 and 900. And 12 is a special number to the Jews because it represents the 12 patriarchs of the tribes of Israel and thus the ideal government over the people of God. So it's no surprise then to see Jewish and Christian commentators picturing Seth as the godly head of a group of godly descendants. We can't really say whether the two pillars tradition associated with Seth had any basis in fact, so we can't lean on that as contributing to the positive view of him preserved in extra-biblical material, especially because there's nothing written about that in the Bible. But it's certainly fascinating. Anyway, I think it's that positive characterization of Seth that resulted in a reaction against him by the rabbis. So we probably shouldn't hold that against him. All right. Well, that's been a really interesting journey through different interpretations of who Seth was and what made him so important. But we are out of time, so let's move on to our giant answers segment. As listeners will be aware, this is the part of the show where Tim answers your questions. And if you have a question, you can send it in. Just visit the website, giantanswers.com. Dot com, or if you're on Facebook, you can go to the Answers to a Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook and join in the awesome conversation there. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Tim sent in a few questions via the website, giantanswers.com. How tall do giants get? Was there other mutations created by angels besides giants? Are there still giant bones and skeletons being found in North America? Thank you, Tim, for your question. And another, Tim, we'll answer them. There you go. All right, so, yeah, let's talk about the height of the giants first. And in order to do that, we need to get a bit of background on who they are and where we get this idea that they actually were tall because you don't find it in Genesis 6. So what I'm going to bring you now is based on a blog post that I published a few years back and which you can find on my website. This was published back in December 2020, and I might expand or elaborate on some points of this beyond the original content of the blog post. In the book of Numbers, chapter 13, the Anakim are introduced to Bible readers. Unlike ourselves, as modern Bible readers, the people of Israel were what we call a high-context audience. They were not just relying on scant written records. They were living out the experience and immersed in the culture. Ancient Israelites had a much better grasp of who the Anakim were than we modern readers have traditionally had. So what did the Israelites know that made them so afraid of the Anakim? 
Why would the biblical author connect them with the pre-flood Nephilim, a word that translates as giants? Israel had just left Egypt and knew of the Anakim from Egyptian interactions with them. Archaeologically, we have evidence of Egyptian contact with the Anakim from the now-famous execration texts. The purpose of these was a kind of magical ritual for cursing one's enemies. The fact that Egyptians considered them formidable enough to require sympathetic magic against them tells us that they were no ordinary enemies. Joshua, as military leader under Moses, was likely of Egyptian heritage. You'll notice his father's name, Nun, is probably Egyptian. If anyone in the group was going to be familiar with the Anakim, Joshua was most likely. I've actually had a lot of objections to this, and uh, if you carefully read through the Exodus and the account of who actually came out of Egypt with the people of Israel, uh, you'll find that there was, in fact, a what I think the King James calls a mixed multitude. Caleb was the other non-Israelite of the group. He was a Kenizzite and uh, as such was familiar with the people groups concerned and not worried about how to deal with them. That's why he later took their capital, Kiryat Arba, that is um, Hebron. The remaining 10 spies were faithless in the face of the Anakim and never made it into the Promised Land. It's kind of interesting because um, that means it was actually the non-Israelites in the group who were who trusted God and the Israelites themselves, the remaining 10, were uh, disloyal and, and didn't trust God and were afraid. So what's in a name? Mm, Anakim does not mean long-necked. I hear that a lot. That comes from the assumption that Anakim is a word of Hebrew origin. Now, I'm not saying that it couldn't be a Hebrew wordplay on the idea of being long-necked, but that isn't where the word comes from. In fact, it has early Egyptian and later Greek derivation, hence the connections with proto-Greek cultures like the Hittites and Hurrians and later Phoenicians, from which we get Perizzites, Philistines, etc. Actually, you can trace it even further back into ancient Mesopotamia, but we haven't got the time for that. I covered that elsewhere in case you want to search the website to find the relevant podcast episodes where I talked about that. The royalty connection is exemplified in the Anakim the biblical account tells us of some of the kings among the Anakim, the sons of Anak. Anak is not just a name, but also a title from the Greek Anaks, meaning king. It's one of the many titles of Apollo, who had a temple in Athens dedicated to the worship of the Anakis, protected gods, similar to the Mesopotamian Apkalu. The Bible tells us that the Anakim, or more accurately, Ben Anak, sons of Anak, were descended from a man named Arba father of Anak, after whom was named Kiryat Arba, city of the tree, later called Hebron. The name Arba comes from Arbion, a verdant mountain on the island of Crete, featuring a prominent temple to the deity Zeus Arbios, god of the tree. According to the ancient Greek author Pausanias, in his work The Description of Greece, the father of Anax, named Asterius, was said to be at least 10 cubits in height. According to Homer, Anax was an archaic title most suited to legendary heroes and gods rather than for contemporary kings. Taking it back further, the Egyptian derivation of Anak can be traced back to the earliest hieroglyphs. The Ark is a symbol that looks like a Christian cross with a loop on the top. In its earliest use, it was intended to describe a spirit within a person, not their physical organic life or 
quality of being alive, but a spirit within the person. This was originally not for the common man, but was used of divinized rulers. In other words, it represented a different spirit, which imbued the king with the qualities of the deity. The hieroglyph shows a tree reaching up to touch the sun and is suggestive of glorification or deification. We now see how it is that the author of Numbers 13.33 was able to say that the Anakim come of the Nephilim. So what the author is telling us is that it's the spirits of the giants from before the flood that are at work in the bodies of these people known as the Anakim? That's right. This image is maintained in the Greek use of Anax when we consider Zeus Arbios and the idea of the deified ruler represented by a tree on a mountain that reaches to heaven. In the Bible, we get this imagery in Ezekiel 31, a passage that connects us back to that enigmatic character known as the Assyrian or Nimrod. He was the guy responsible for a man-made mountain that was built to reach heaven. Seeing Babel as the origin of royal human deification makes sense of all these ethnic variations of the concept. It ties in with the worldview that Scripture presents, showing that the nations were subjected to the rule of lesser gods following the rebellion at Babel. Those who had participated at Babel became the divinized rulers of the nations, imbued with the spirits of the Nephilim, and recognized as such by their tall stature. They were known by many tribal names, but collectively they were called Anakim, the Ascended Masters. Okay, so we get the idea that they were tall, but how tall were they? In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2, we get some idea that they were of some legendary height. Let's read from Deuteronomy 2 verses 9 to 11 and 19 to 21. From verse 9, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. Ni-Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. And down to verse 19, when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamim a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. So now we have some scripture that also confirms that they were tall, and we're not just relying on ancient records from outside of the Bible, but it still doesn't tell us exactly how tall they were. There are only two people in the whole Bible whose height is actually measured in units. One of those is an Egyptian who's not given a name in the text, but is described as being five cubits tall. A cubit is approximately 18 inches or 45 centimetres in length, so at a minimum, that guy is seven and a half feet tall. That's assuming a common cubit that would have been in use by Israelites. But this is an Egyptian, and that raises the possibility that the Egyptian cubit could have been in use. Egyptian cubits were bigger, so now we're talking about eight foot eight. That's a big dude. And keep in mind that every so often people of that kind of size still appear in modern culture today. This isn't impossible even by modern standards. Of course, the other guy in scripture whose height gets measured is Goliath. And I know he probably needs no introduction to this audience, but I will just remind listeners that depending on which manuscript tradition you're reading, you're going to find different heights recorded for Goliath. So in the Masoretic text, he stands at 9 feet 9, and in the Greek translation, he's 6 feet 9. 
you'll notice that there was no dispute between manuscript traditions about the height of the other guy. And that leads me to conclude that the Masoretic text reading isn't necessarily out of the question. So what other evidence do we have? Another thing to consider is what I was saying earlier about the connection between kings and rulers and these giants. And we know from the book of 1 Samuel how much the people of Israel wanted to have a king like the kings of the other nations. So who did they choose as king? They pick a guy who stands head and shoulders above everybody else. They literally chose the closest thing they had to a giant, literally the tallest guy in Israel, who was Saul. Right, this is Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Right, that's the, the key bit there at the end. Uh, and then we go to 1 Samuel 8, verse 19 and onwards. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. On to chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So what does that tell us about the nature of the giants? Well, it tells us that we shouldn't expect them to be any bigger than exceptionally tall people are today. Because when we look at what the Bible has to say, instead of the extra-biblical material, which isn't the inspired Word of God, we find that these fanciful descriptions of giants who are well over 10 feet tall and even up to ridiculous sizes like 3,000 L's or cubits, uh, as recorded in the Book of Enoch, we can see that these were actually too far removed from the kind of people we can still find living today. And that leads me on to the third question that Tim asked, which was about the remains of giants in America and if they're still being discovered today. Well, I'm quite sure that they are. But again, if you're looking for people of enormous size, like the kind of stuff you get in fairy tales, then no, you're not going to find that. This is something that I talked about in the very earliest episodes of the podcast. If you want to check those out, I think there was actually one recently where Joe Zaragoza uh, from the Commentarians podcast actually popped a question over to us and asked about the giants of Lovelock Cave. Uh, that was early this season. So it's another uh, episode where I, I talk about this. And while we're on the topic of stuff that I've already covered, I have addressed your second question, Tim, in a couple of previous episodes where I discussed the idea of angelic interbreeding with animals and that kind of thing. Again, those episodes can be found by searching the website giantanswers.com and that will give you a quick link to the episodes where I've talked about that in some detail. All right. Well, we are out of time for this episode, so we're going to wrap it up there, and we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. See you then, uh, and make sure you're, you're there for that one because um, we're going to have a conversation with a good friend of ours, and you may know her already, uh, Carrie Griffel from the Genesis Marks the Spot podcast, and uh, she has her finger in a lot of pies on Facebook, so you might find her around. Um, we're going to have a chat to her, and we will get back to Genesis 5 in the following week. So, yeah, don't miss it. It's time to wrap up today's episode. 
but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. That's pretty cool, really, and it makes you wonder what Ben wrote. All right. Obama. <laughs> That's pretty cool, and it does make you wonder what Ben wrote. Ben Sirach. Ben Sirach. Ben Sirach. Okay. It's not that difficult, Chris. Come on. Did I miss something? Uh, you got a line there. Do I? Oh, yeah, sorry. I was looking at the wrong guide. They always die. Well, yeah. So there's that original Hebrew chronology. So there's that original Hebrew chronology. So there's that original Hebrew chronology. <laughs> Note to self, don't drink before recording. <clears throat> so there's that original Hebrew chronology we've been talking about. And it would appear that Seth is only counted as righteous by way of favourable... <clears throat> And it would appear that Seth is only counted as righteousness. Bleh. Seth was taken up by angels and given instruction. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> and this was a Christian wedding. Mm. So the Bucks night, they put him um, upside down, tied him to a lamppost in his underwear. They painted his junk with meat dye <laughs> <laughs> to make his junk go red. Right. But because he was hanging upside down, it was like trickling down to me and it went on his face. Oh, no. And meat dies like last days. So yep. on his wedding, he had red stripes on his face. <laughs> <laughs> on all the photos and everything. <laughs> Which sounds hilarious now, but like obviously everyone was furious. So. <laughs> The best man just wasn't invited to the wedding. The groomsman is like, nah, screw you guys. So none of them turned up at the wedding. Ugh. But, yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, ridiculous. It's like. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. You know, when we started the podcast, most of the questions we got was about Genesis 4. And that was a trend that continued until we started to cover Genesis 4, and then I stopped getting questions about it. Mm, okay. So yeah. uh, all I can say about that is I think that when we started that season by recapping everything that I'd previously said about that serpent seed doctrine and all that stuff, mm. 
I think that really knocked a lot of things on the head, you know, and people were just like, right, okay, well, you set me straight on that. So, yeah. Yeah. Question for your honour. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you want. Um, yeah. My, my computer is sitting in my sock drawer and, and I'm just perched on the side of my bed. Um, so we'll see Excellent. how that goes for a professional sound setup. Excellent. Is your sock drawer the same as your undie drawer? Uh, no, that one's separate. Wow. How many undies do you have? Well, it's more a question of how many socks. My socks uh Many very. I have a vast, vast quantity of socks. Excellent. Uh, Talked about. (laughs) Do you feel old? (sighs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, my my elbow reminds me every day. Mm, Yes. Also, my knee and my back and ah. <laughs> various other things. My earlobes are fine, though. Ah, well, it's important to have good earlobes. My nostrils have never given me any problems. That's good to know. 